Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm here with RCD contributor John Waters. Today we are speaking with the authors of a recent article in the Wall Street Journal titled The Navy SEAL Who Went to Ukraine Because He Couldn't Stop Fighting. Ian Lovett covers Ukraine for the Wall Street Journal and Brett Forrest, a national security reporter for the Wall Street Journal who often focuses on the former Soviet Union. He's covered the war in Ukraine and was the first reporter in the Kiev suburb of Bukha after Russia's military withdrawal, where he broke news of alleged atrocities. Ian and Brett, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks for having us. Thank you. John Waters, this article has uh, really caught on on the site. We we linked to it. Tell me a little bit and, and to get into it with our uh, our guests, why you think this caught on with our readership. This article exploded because it got to some truths, not only the truths of Daniel Swift's life, which we'll go into, but it got to some truths more universally about coming home from war, about being someone who goes to war. I have a novel coming out in November called River City One about this theme. In the foreword to the novel, our Washington bureau chief, Carl Cannon, writes about the Civil War historian Bruce Catton. In his boyhood in rural Michigan, just after the turn of the 20th century, Catton had known some of the aged army veterans from the Union Army. After returning to their farms and villages in the time before the automobile, most of them never again ventured even 50 miles from their homes. And nothing that happened there fazed them or interested them very much. All that was real had taken place when they were young. Catton wrote of the men who lived out their lives expecting to eventually be reunited with their lost comrades. This is an encapsulation of the feeling that comes across in the Navy SEAL who went to Ukraine because he couldn't stop fighting. Ian Lovett and Brett Forrest, how did you discover this story? I actually first heard about this the day that uh, Daniel Swift was wounded in, in Bakhmut in Ukraine. Uh, I got a phone call from a source of mine, uh, an American guy who's who's active in Ukraine, uh, a veteran who uh, has a lot of contacts in these circles among uh, f- uh, former uh, U.S. military who've uh, gone to Ukraine to volunteer to fight. And he called me and he said, you know, that he just heard that a former Navy SEAL had just been grievously wounded uh, fighting uh, the Russian paramilitary outfit Wagner on the front lines in Bakhmut. And so, of course, instantly, uh, I was intrigued because Ian and I knew very well that there were a lot of these Americans who had flooded into Ukraine uh, right after, beginning right after the Russian uh, widespread invasion, uh, February last year of the country. But it was very interesting to us that here was someone, a veteran of, of the special forces of the United States uh, there. And, uh, and as we began looking further into the story, the personal story of Daniel Swift, uh, it, it just became more fascinating. And Ian, what about you? How did you come to this story? I, you know, I had been in touch with a number of foreign legion guys, not all of them American. There was a lot of, um, you know, there's people from all over the world who've come to Ukraine. Um, and anyway, it was, was just sort of poking around looking for, for, um, something to, to write about the foreign legion. And, um, and then Dan Swift's death got written about a little bit at the time. Um, and I just, you know, I, I found his, his personal story really fascinating. Uh, I think 
there was a little more, I guess, I guess there was, there was, it seemed like there was a little more to it in terms of how he ended up there than, than a lot of the people, um, than a lot of the people I'd met or at least what they had been, been willing to share up to that point. I'm on the edge of my seat already. So let's just get into the details of the report. Let's start at the top. In 2019, Daniel Swift, his nerves were shot, you said, quote, why? Well, his nerves were shot because he was um, in the midst of a personal crisis. Um, his family was falling apart. He was facing criminal charges. And he was really facing the possible end of his military career because of these criminal charges. And he was on the brink of making a fateful decision. And uh, Ian, maybe you can pick it up from there. One of the things that we heard from people who who knew Dan Swift in Ukraine was that he he said he'd spent his whole life working to become a Navy SEAL, that that was all he'd wanted to do from the time he was a child. And he felt like he was on the brink of having that taken away from him. He already felt like his family, he was losing his family. Um, and that he didn't want to let someone else take this from him. That if he was going to, if he was going to lose it, he wanted to make the decision himself. Um, that's what one person I know, um, I spoke to who knew him in Ukraine said, um, and so, so he decided to leave preemptively, um, before finishing with, with the criminal proceedings or any of that before anyone could, could kind of render a judgment, uh, on him or his life. People think of the military, especially combat veterans, probably especially special forces, Navy SEALs people as rogues. I think the media has done something to fuel that. But these are people who follow rules too. They follow a lot of rules. And when they feel that they're not following rules or that they've done something wrong, it has a grave psychological consequence. So get back into the story though. Daniel Swift was a SEAL in 2018, 2019. He'd been out for a while. He'd gotten back in. He disappears. He's off the grid. He resurfaces in 2022 in a message chat with active and former Navy SEALs. He's telling them about what he was doing in Ukraine, and he asks folks to come and join him. If not, just send supplies. But instead, those SEALs on that message chat tell Daniel, you should come home. Why don't they join him? Well, you know, I, I talked to uh, uh, one of his uh, former SEAL buddies who was on the one of these chat groups. And, and uh, yeah, because for, for a, no, a number of years, uh, uh, his, his comrades, uh, from the seals, were, they were wondering where he was, if he was alive still, where he'd gone. Uh, there were a lot of rumors about him. And when he reappeared in that chat, um, I think a, a lot of the guys were, were surprised, but also kind of, uh, uh, you know, th it was something that they kind of expected Dan to do because they knew, uh, how intrepid he was and, and, uh, you know, how much he loved adventure and how much he wanted to be part of the action. So, um, you know, he popped up on that chat and he was asking them for, like you said, uh, supplies, if they could send supplies. He was also, interestingly, um, he was asking if, if they could help, uh, in terms of, uh, gathering and sharing intelligence that would be useful to the uh, Ukrainian war effort against the Russians. Um, and, and you're right. He did, he did try and recruit a bunch of the guys to come over. You know, nobody went because, um, you know, and I think Ian's a little bit closer to this than I am, especially recently. Um, I can talk to, you know, the, the types of guys, the types of U.S. veterans who show up, who have, who have shown up in Ukraine. I mean, it's, it's not the thing for everybody, uh, but it was for Dan. Tell us about those vets, Ian, if you can. 
there's all types of U.S. veterans who are are serving here. Dan was the only Navy SEAL I encountered anyway. Um, but there are Green Berets, there are Army Rangers, there's infantry. You know, there's people from all the different branches of the U.S. military. Um, they are all all the ones I've met anyway. People who got out at least a couple of years ago, um, and so they were people who had been fighting. A lot of them served uh, in Afghanistan. Not all of them, but a lot of them did. Um, and had tried to go home. And one theme among a number of the guys that I spoke to was a feeling that they were missing the kind of fulfillment that they got when they were serving in the military, and particularly when they were serving overseas, that they felt like they had a purpose, they had a mission. Um, there was there was something bigger that they were doing, and that when they got back home, you know, one guy, one guy uh, who was a, a former Army Ranger, I think put it very well where he said he was just sitting at his office job and he'd been reading history books about people who fought in wars in centuries past. And, and he was thinking, maybe this is the last chance that I'm going to have to do something like this before for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm just sitting at this kind of office job again. And so I think it was, it was a lot of the guys were people who felt like they wanted, they wanted some sense of, mission or excitement or adventure that they were not able to get once they got home from the military. Mission, excitement, adventure. You're mentioning an army ranger quoted in the piece. He says a couple things that struck me. One thing he's quoted as saying is war is fun. I find that statement kind of vague. I'm not sure what he means. He may mean that more sort of artistically than literally, actually. He also says though, in war, your mission is crystal clear. That makes more sense to me. What do you think? That was actually a different guy, because um, you know a number of the a number of the people who fought Dan expressed versions of this sentiment. But so that was actually a different guy. He was, um, I think, an army engineer, if I remember, and and had gotten out um, and was working at a mining company. Um, he, it, you know, he said that he, he said the war is fun thing. I talked to him about that a decent bit. And he said that that's something that a lot of people feel and that they don't want to admit that it's a little bit taboo, but there is, you know, an excitement and adrenaline rush that you get when you're in the middle of a firefight that is hard to feel doing almost anything else, especially after you've done that. And, you know, I think we've, you see this manifesting in different ways with different veterans, um, where you get people who, who take up kind of thrill seeking hobbies of various sorts, um, as well. I, I think that's been written about quite a bit over the last few years. And so, so that's the sentiment that he was, was trying to express that going and working at a blue collar job, which is what he was doing. Um, once he was back home, didn't, didn't give him that same kind of rush and didn't feel to him like he was doing something, you know, he was supporting his family, but he didn't feel like he was doing something that had like a greater, a greater purpose beyond that either. I think, I think it's those, those two sides of it are the two things that people feel and that draws them to back towards conflict. You took a little heat in the comments section on the piece for this particular quote. I think it rises to the top of the comments. The war is fun quote. Some of the commenters, maybe veterans themselves, I don't know, said this was kind of sensationalizing. That wasn't Daniel Swift's quote, I think, was the point of clarity the commenter was raising. Would you agree? Yeah, I, Brett, um, Brett, maybe you should speak to this as well. But I, I think that's a fair criticism that it wasn't Dan's quote. And we, and we took it off the headline eventually for that, for that reason. But it suggested it was Dan's quote and it wasn't. I think, that's, I think that's fair. In terms of the quote being in the story, I think it's, 
it's a thing that someone who fought with him for quite a while in Ukraine said. I, I don't I don't know that there's any reason that that the quote itself is sensationalistic, but I I see the criticism of the headline. Right? If you want to add to that, yeah. I mean, I, look, I I think if we can broaden this discussion a little bit, that might be useful or helpful. Um, uh, if we can discuss uh, the idea, like anybody who who lives a life uh, in the extreme and then has a, a drastic change in lifestyle and sort of downshifts to something more conventional. Uh, I think it's, it's clear throughout human history that many such people um, long for what they previously had. And, uh, and, and they look for it, you know, that they try and recreate it or, or return to it. So it's, you know, it's not just people who've, uh, who fought in wars, but, but we like, you know, of course it's, it's important to talk about such people because they exist in a, in a world of the gravest sticks. Right. And so I, you know, Daniel Swift was not unique. He was, he was a, a, a type, right. Um, and, uh, and in that, in that group of people who sort of returned to battle, because they they miss the clarity of it, and they miss the stakes of it. Um, you know, there are people who who can kind of take 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 a step back and say what this one gentleman told Ian, and that is, uh, you know, even though, like I think the greater context was, yeah, we we understand that we're risking our lives here, but um, but there's something that we get that we get out of it that is is kind of fun. So, um, you know, but I don't, I think Ian and I are in agreement here. We we don't want to show that um necessarily that that dan was kind of uh a reckless uh thrill seeker doing this uh just just for the heck of it uh i, th- I mean to my mind daniel swift was uh you know someone who's very dedicated to his country and someone who uh you know, he, he's a warrior a class of people who um who risk their lives uh, and are ready to for, to pay the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of their country. And I, I think it's important not to lose sight of that fact. Brett, I actually agree with your statement there. And thanks for broadening the picture. I would say war probably doesn't do anything to the combat veteran that life won't do to everyone else. There are a host of hard things people must encounter through life and suffering isn't optional. But to your, to your later point about who Daniel was, you quote a friend in the story, he says, Daniel was a tough kid. He was humble. He was quiet, a little bit crazy. I think he could probably describe most combat arms troops with those terms. Can you tell us personally about Daniel Swift? Can you tell us a little bit more, unpack who he was just as a guy? Sure. Um, I I spoke with uh, a host of people who served with him in the Navy and the SEALs. Um, And and I'm, I'm glad you uh, you read out that quote because the last part of it, a little bit crazy, you know, is, is important to, I think, clarify because we're not saying that, you know, obviously it wasn't clinically insane. Um, uh, what we're saying there really is, is what a lot of the SEALs told me, which is you know, if you sign up to be a Navy SEAL, I mean, all of us are kind of a little bit crazy, you know, it's all sort of said tongue in cheek because, um, I mean, I think all of us on this conversation, we understand the, the, the type of uh, risks and work that they choose to undertake by being SEALs. Um, but Dan, Dan was known to his SEAL colleagues as uh, a, a, a fiercely dedicated person. 
Uh, he had he had always wanted to be a seal from a young age, from the time that he'd first seen um, uh, pictures of, of Navy SEALs in a, in a magazine that his older brother was reading. Um, and um, you know, while a lot of his uh, his SEAL colleagues in Hawaii and then later in San Diego would you know in their off hours be carousing and going to bars, and Dan didn't drink, he didn't smoke. He he uh, he was a family man. He was a father at age twenty. He had four kids, um, and his life was the seals, uh, learning how to become a better seal. You know, constantly reading manuals, very dedicated to his work, and the other half of his life was his family. And that was kind of that that composed his life. He sounds like a hero. He sounds like a great American. He sounds like anyone we could imagine ourselves being honored to serve with for. I would agree. I mean, of course, Ian and I didn't didn't get a chance to meet Daniel Swift. He he his death call, you know, his, his, or at least his his wound on the battlefield was what sparked our interest, in understanding of who he was. Um, so all we can go off of is our conversations with people who did indeed know him, and it, I mean, it's it's unanimous. I mean, I mean, he's held in very high esteem, uh, both among the SEAL community, at least the folks who who knew him and fought with him. And also among the people who fought with him in ad hoc groups in Ukraine. I mean, he was he was a very experienced, professional, capable person. A boy from rural Oregon who achieves his life's goal in serving in the Navy SEALs, has a family. He's a straight edge guy. You've described him as. He gets out of the Navy SEALs, uh, I think, in the late two, 2000s, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 2013. When did he get out of the SEALs, Brett? Do you recall? Yeah, he was. Uh, he had an interregnum there where he he left uh, in 2013 to 15, and he became a a policeman in the Northwest. But then he uh, he missed it, and he came back in uh, 2018 to the SEALs. This is a problem for him going back home, and he, you're pretty clear clear about it. You zero in on that fact. Lots of veterans can identify with this in some form, and as you pointed out earlier, other people can too, who feel their life has taken a change and they don't know why. But he says uh, he doesn't like being a police officer. It's not what he expected. The rewards are for giving out tickets rather than helping people. What's it like being back home? So Yeah, so I think most of what we know from this section of his life, um, Brett spoke to some, some SEAL buddies of his who he would, would talk to during this period. But he, you know, he wrote this autobiography under a pseudonym that he published online, which, which goes into detail here. And it doesn't sound necessarily like he was unhappy with a lot of aspects of, of life back in Oregon. He got to spend a lot of time with his kids, which he seemed to really enjoy. Um, and he would sort of go out and do the things with them that, you know, I think traditionally fathers do with their, their kids where he was, um, you know, grilling, grilling hot dogs and driving into the woods and exploring. And, you know, he was teaching them to, to, to shoot guns. Um, and it was really the work it seemed like that was, that was frustrating for him that he, he had had in the seals, a sense that he was serving um, in a way that had a, a higher purpose. And I think he expected something similar, at least some measure of it when he, when he joined the police. Um, and, and that wasn't what he, what he felt once he had been doing the job for a while. And, it, and it, he, he, he clearly seemed to miss the companionship as well. And, and so when one of his old buddies from the seals died in a, a training accident, that was actually the event that seemed to prompt him to to get back in that he wanted to be sort of part of that community again and if, if i can also add uh you know, there's a great anecdote uh 
from a conversation I had with one of his, his SEAL comrades. And he said that, uh, that Dan would sometimes be sitting in a, in his squad car, uh, on the state highway in Washington or Oregon, um, uh, you know, trying to catch speeders. And he would, he would be texting the guys in the SEAL saying like, Oh man, you know, like what am I, I, I miss, I miss life with you guys. I don't even really know what I'm doing. We hear it all the time. We talk to combat veterans often and they have these moments of powerful nostalgia, uh, possessed by memory in a way, wondering how they got where they are. And you go into details of this time period with his family, um, which is mostly good, but he decides to re-enter the SEALs uh, in 2018. Is that right? Tell me about that. The journal has drilled like certain fact-checking ideas into me. So I'm now looking up the date that he went, he got back in. <laughs> I want to make sure it was 2018. Um, but um, Brett, if you have this on the if you have this at the top of your yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay. Um, so oh no, sorry, you're right. Yeah, no, 20, 2018 is when he came back from Yemen and uh, y- yeah, and exactly. Really so, yeah, so apart. yeah, it was 15, so I think 2015. It was it was the end of 2015 that he got back in. And then um, he was stationed in San Diego this time. He had been stationed in Hawaii before then. Um, and he was, he was stationed in San Diego. He went back to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And then in 2018, he went to Yemen. He did, I believe, eight months in Yemen. Um, and he doesn't talk a lot in the autobiography about what any of those tours were like, except for Yemen. He said Yemen... Um, that actually they were sort of sitting in an airbase a lot of a lot of the time, and so he was he was spending more time kind of texting his wife and texting people at home than he had in previous tours overseas. Um, and then he got back home to San Diego in the fall of 2018, and that and then then basically things quickly collapsed after that. Let me add something here too, um, especially for your listeners who probably know this stuff well and are interested in it. Um, when, when Swift initially joined the SEALs, he, uh, for his, you know, his first stint, he was with, uh, SDV, you know, SEAL delivery vehicle team in, in Hawaii. So, uh, he was doing, he was just underwater for most of his, uh, his, his service there. Um, and as, uh, as you guys probably know, uh, this is, this is the only team, of all the SEAL teams that, that does all the underwater work. Um, and, uh, and it's really difficult work. I mean, they, the training out there in Hawaii is like, you know, eight hours a day, sometimes under underwater the whole time, very difficult work for these guys. And, uh, a lot of them kind of chafe at it because they, they want to, they want to be fighting. They want to be, you know, facing the enemy. Um, but what their, what their work of course is, is critically important to what the SEALs do. And when, uh, when Dan rejoined, uh, he, he joined, I believe it was SEAL Team 1 in San Diego. And I think that was the, the you know, that, that enabled him to, to work more directly toward his goal. Even, even before he, he got out in the first place, though, he ended up doing several tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. In yeah. his view, as a result yeah. of his own advocacy for it, because he was pushing, That's he right. was frustrated of not being involved and kept pushing for it. And eventually they sent him. Yeah, that's right. Did he feel satisfied in the work he did in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yes. On, based on his book, absolutely. Um, Afghanistan in particular, he said, 
um, he, he said very little about it other than that it was basically was satisfying and was what he expected. Yeah. I mean, for obvious reasons, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't get into great detail about these things, but, uh, certainly that his descriptions of, uh, of, uh, the work he did in those countries really differs from, from his description of, of his experience in, in Yemen, which he noted, uh, he was, he felt a little frustrated by, um, you know, his ability to really contribute. And when he gets back from Yemen, things take a turn for the worse with his family, which becomes kind of the trigger for much that takes place uh, that follows through Thailand, through Ukraine, up to uh, when he's killed in Ukraine. What happens with his family, guys? It, it's hard to know exactly what happened because his his account in the book and his wife's account in court documents um, are very different. You know, she says that he came back and was angry and prone to yelling at her. Um, and then she wanted to end. They agree that she wanted to end the marriage. Um, and that she accuses him first of threatening, threatening her sort of vaguely with a gun. If she tried to leave with the children, um, he has a slightly different account of it where he was, he said, see what happens if, if the police come and try to take my family. Um, and then she, she and her sister accused him of, of choking his, her sister um, during an altercation where he was trying to take back custody of one of the children. And neither of them had legal custody at that point. So, you know, he had, he had legal right to do that um, in theory. And, and he said he did not choke the sister and he was trying to fend the women off while they were trying to stop him from leaving. Um, but, but in any case, after that incident, he was, he was given a restraining order. He was charged with domestic violence and false imprisonment, child endangerment, number of, you know, number of felonies. And, and he went to, a, he went to at least one or two of the court hearings. I'm forgetting exactly, but then, but then left shortly after that. Where did he go? Well, he, uh, he, he went, I believe first to Mexico. Um, he, he also was apparently in Germany and, and this comes from conversations we had with, uh, with folks in the military who, who had uh, heard from superiors that his passport was you know, sort of showing up in various immigration systems. And so people in the Navy were, were sort of trying to figure out where he was. Um, he also went to France. Interestingly, he tried to join the French foreign legion, um, being the warrior that he was and, uh, faced a little obstacle, well, uh, an insurmountable obstacle there because, uh, the recruiters there learned he had, quite a large brood of children for kids and they they believe that at, you know at some point that might be a distraction for him so they denied his application um and then ultimately we find him in in thailand uh of all places where uh, he he kind of cuts loose um he's a, a single man for the first time in a long time and he you know he adventures around the country and and uh, takes up kickboxing um uh, and uh is leading a, a very different lifestyle. And, and so refresh my, my memory from the story. How does he make it? How and why does he go from Thailand to Ukraine? And when? Folks told us that, that when Russia invaded Ukraine widely, February 24th last year, um, that uh, early news reports of Russian... Uh, crimes, you could say, 
uh, against Ukrainian children really awoke Dan's uh, personal interest. He, he was, as I mentioned, a, a family man, four kids, and he was desperately missing his children. And of course, he himself had made the decision to go AWOL, to leave his family behind, to leave uh, his profession and his colleagues behind. Um, he had his own reasons for doing that. Um, but you can imagine his anguish. Uh, and uh, folks told us that these news reports of Ukrainian children suffering uh, made Dan decide that he was, he was going to try and do something about it. And he was the type of person, you know, given his background, professional training uh, and experience, he was the type of person who, who, who might be able to do something about it, in, you know, as much as one man can. Uh, and he also, of course, as we know, was, was a warrior at heart. And he was drawn to conflict. Um, and so he, he decided, time to get on a plane and, and, and see what I could do. So it didn't take very long. February of 2022, the war begins. By early March, he enters Ukraine and joins a platoon running missions behind enemy lines near Kiev, you write, according to soldiers who fought with him there. From the beginning, he is someone kind of special, it seems, on the battlefield. He's, he's obviously a, a special trained soldier, a special forces soldier with deep experience. What is he? What is he like on the battlefield? I guess in Ukraine after March of 2022, what's he known for? One one funny anecdote that didn't make it into the story actually is that he, when he arrived and linked up with this um, foreign legion platoon in Kiev, he had COVID and he didn't realize it yet. But but everyone said um, the phrase I heard over and over again was he looked like dog shit. Um, and, um, and so then I, a couple of guys said that actually when he said he was a Navy SEAL at first, I didn't believe him because he like, he looked so terrible and he was wearing like these old, um, kind of old style fatigues. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> uh, but anyway, then, and, and a couple of people, I think thought that he had, had abandoned them, like, had, because a lot of people were coming and going in those early days and people were sort of pretending to have experience that they didn't necessarily have. Um, and so, he came and he showed up and was introduced to everybody. And then nobody saw him the next couple of days. And a bunch of people thought he had just like gone, gone missing, but actually he was just in his room sick with COVID <laughs> um, the whole time. Um, so anyway, uh, when he finally got, got out on, on missions with these guys, I mean, they, they understood very quickly that he, he knew very well what he was doing. Um, you know, you know, in a way that not everyone, even the people with military experience did. Um, it took him a little while to adjust. I mean, they, there were some, there were some stories about, um, you know, that the Ukrainian military is not the Navy SEALs. Like they don't have the same kind of equipment. They don't have the same kind of, um, operational command structure. And so, you know, for the first couple of days, he was, people kept saying he was like, we're just going to do this. We're going to walk behind the uh, the vehicle, like hoping we see a tank. Um, but that, um, anyway, he, he, he got used to it and he, he quickly developed a reputation as, uh, you know, Brett said earlier that he was not, um, just a thrill seeker. And it was actually quite the opposite, but he, he was known for always being very calm in battle and being very methodical. Um, and that, um, there was, he was at, um, 
he was actually at a, a base for processing foreign foreigners who were coming to fight when a missile hit it. And another guy who ended up fighting with him was there as well. And he said people were running and going crazy all over the place. And and Dan was Dan was sort of calmly calmly walking around in the aftermath, collecting his things. Um, and th- and that was that was the kind of anecdote that we heard about him over and over again. Yeah, it comes through in the story. He's not just a soldier, he's a leader. There's, I'll read from one part of your piece in the Wall Street Journal. The Legion team's Ukrainian commander, Alexei Shubishev, was shot through the neck with a Russian tank approaching. Mr. Swift laid down, covering fire to free a group of pinned down comrades who put Captain Shubishev on a stretcher and carried him out the back of the building. Mr. Swift joined them outside to help carry the stretcher. A video seen by the Wall Street Journal shows them hauling the body through the city in daylight without cover while artillery shells whistle and crash around them. After about a half mile in the June heat, an exhausted young soldier dropped his corner of the stretcher and just tore into him, a member of the team from Minnesota recalled. He never yells, but he screamed like, what are you saving your energy for? He sounds like someone who was not just fighting, he was leading and looked up to. What happens next? He was eventually put in charge of um, a various team. So he was the ground force commander through a number of operations up the Dnipro Gulf, um, where they were they were targeting Russian positions um, in the Kherson region um, across across the river. Um, and then he was he was also in charge of the team when they went into Sverdlovsk. Um, last June, and that was where Alexei Chubyshev, the, the Ukrainian commander, was killed. Um, and and Brett, do you want to do you want to take over the the after after Sverdlovsk part? There is so much action that he's a part of through 2022, but there is a change that comes. It seems around the new year. Uh, you write by the new year, Ukraine's hold on Bakhmut in the eastern Donetsk region was tenuous. Mr. Swift's unit dispatched there found Ukrainian troops scattered in basements around the city, sheltering from withering Russian artillery fire. I'm just here in the basement, Mr. Swift said in a phone call with a former Green Beret who fought with him earlier in the war. Quote, trying to plan missions that are not going to get us killed. What was going on in Bakhmut? Dan, likes, likes uh, so many of the folks uh, fighting in Ukraine, they... Yeah, you know, they're they're on the front lines for a while, then they come back and they have they have a break. And and uh, before he got to Bakhmut, and at this period, he was in Kiev, and they were they were planning missions that they were going to carry out in uh, in Bakhmut. And um, and folks told us that you know really Dan was leading a lot of that training. And even though he wasn't sort of the, the head of, of of these units, because uh, those were always Ukrainian guys. Um, uh, some folks told us that like we didn't we didn't do anything without running it by Dan first. So uh, by the time they got back to Bakhmut at that uh, in that time period, he was, um, you know, he was he was kind of he was a guy that a lot of people were relying on, um, and he was also at that point, you know, so many of these stories that we read about or you know see in movies or. Um, on TV, uh, that play out this way. Um, and what I mean is, you know, Dan was saying, okay, well, after this, this, uh, time in Bakhmut, I'm going to rotate back to Kiev and, and, you know, to kind of take a longer break and maybe sort of reassess. He, he was a, a woman that he'd met in, in, uh, in Thailand 
was um, was was traveling to to Kiev, and he was looking for an apartment. And he he seemed to be maybe shifting gears a little bit. Um, so you know, like those things you often see in movies, it was, he was saying sort of like, okay, well, I'm just going to do one more run in Bakhmut for now. Um, and uh, you know, he gets there. Uh, as, uh, as we wrote in the story, and as you mentioned, he's, you know, they're, they're sheltering in basements as they're preparing for, for operations and they have an operation, uh, because at that point, Wagner, the Russian paramilitary group had encroached on a certain part of the city and Bakhmut, and they were setting up in a couple houses, private homes there. And the Ukrainians wanted to dislodge them. So Dan's unit, uh, that was that became their responsibility, and Dan led a fire team of I think it was four guys, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, and they at night they went and uh, you know went after these Wagner guys in these houses, and uh, and they they went into one house and they eliminated everybody who was there, and it was when they were moving from that house to the next house that they. Uh, there was a position of uh, Wagnerites that they hadn't accounted for, or hadn't known about. And uh, one of these guys fired an RPG round at them. And at the same time, small arms fire was coming at them. And it's unclear what exactly hit Dan, whether it was shrapnel from the RPG or it was uh, a bullet, but uh, he was grievously wounded in, in, in the head, in the brain. And he fell. Um, but he was still conscious when people came to him. And um, this is kind of his, his sort of last act of bravery uh, because they were trying to evacuate and they were having difficulty you know, trying to get him on his feet. And, and he said, look, just get me on my feet. I'll walk out. This was a guy who had a traumatic brain injury uh, and he was still trying to you know, live up to his own standard of battlefield behavior. Ian, anything to add? I can, yeah. I mean, so, so, I I only talked to the one guy he had the phone call with in Bakhmut, but I was I was actually there a week or two after um, Dan Swift was killed in Bakhmut, so I can give you a sense of of what it was like there. I mean, the all of the Ukrainian units there were just ba- they were just in basements. And you could sort of figure out where, if you were if you were in town, you could see where the basements were because they all had generators outside, and there would be dozens and dozens and dozens of guys in there. And then they would go out on various missions, which were often either to retake these homes on the northern edge of the city, uh, or to just hold positions in these residential homes on the northern edge of the city. And and um, I talked to a number of Ukrainian fighters who were doing similar jobs at similar times. And they said that that was like the, among the most brutal places they'd been in the whole war, that Wagner was just throwing so many people at them and it would just come down and be wave after wave after wave of, of, of guys that they had to, they had to, had to shoot basically as they were, as they were trying to just hold on to this one house. Um, and so, and, and also all of the, all the major buildings, like the ones with basements that, that Ukrainians were basing themselves out of were getting flattened one by one slowly by Russian artillery. So it was, it was a really rough, like it was a, it was a rough place to be. The, the other thing I would just add is that I think, you know, a lot of guys who Dan fought with 
took breaks out of Ukraine during the time that he was there. And a lot of them went home. You know, some of them had, they had families they want to get back to or wives or jobs that would only give them leave for a certain amount of time. Um, but Dan, I think by the end was a little bit going the other direction. You know, I don't think he felt like he, he could go home. He was going to have to face probably even more legal charges than he was facing when he left. And so he was, it seemed like he was starting to set up something of a life in Ukraine, that he was looking for an apartment, that he was talking about trying to start an academy to teach tactics after the war, um, because going home was not an option for him in the same way. What's money like for the, for these guys, Dan and others, Ian, Brett? I mean, how do they support themselves? He's looking for an apartment. He was thinking about sort of settling down, making a life. They, they get paid by the Foreign Legion. They they I, Money is not super tight for them. And so he's killed on the battlefield, he died while still a SEAL, though AWOL, as you say, in a war to which the U.S. has not committed troops. There's a picture, it's in the article, it's been used across the media of an f- American flag-draped coffin in what looks like an Eastern Orthodox church. It's an odd thing to look at. It's strange to the eye. He's considered to be an active deserter. Um, do people talk about Daniel Swift now that you hear from on the ground or otherwise? And what do you hear? We had a big response from, from readers to the story. I think a lot of them were... Um, sympathetic to him not all of them but a lot of them were a lot of them were very sympathetic to his family also and we kept getting requests for people asking if there was a gofundme or something that they could donate to to help his family um a number were a little incredulous that the u.s government was hadn't decided whether they were gonna sort of give the family the navy benefits um i don't know brett what else you might have heard People. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's important to note that uh, at the Pentagon um, has yet to decide on that issue because, uh, as we noted, uh, Dan had four kids, and um, so the family is is eager to to know if uh, the U.S. government will will pay. Yeah, I guess you'd call it death benefits to uh, to to the kids. And uh, that decision hasn't come. I know the family's frustrated with that, but you know, but Dan's case is is a difficult one because he, you know, he was AWOL. He, you know, he chose to leave his post, um, and then you know, but on the other hand, he died fighting for Ukraine's interests, which align at the moment with you know U.S. national interests. So it's it's complicated. It's complicated, and perhaps that's one reason why it's taking a while for. The decision to come down. On February 11th, several SEALs attended Daniel Swift's funeral in Oregon. In a video viewed by the journal, you write, one by one, they punched metal SEAL pins into the surface of his casket, a SEAL ritual to the fallen. I wonder what you hear from uh, other SEALs or other service members, either in Ukraine or out of Ukraine. What's their opinion of this article? The folks that I've talked to, the sources that, that um, contributed to our understanding of Dan, um, are unanimous. They, they, they've all uh, they've very, been very appreciative of the article because uh, I think primarily because uh, when Dan died, there were a lot of uh, quickly written articles that were published immediately. And, and they all said the same thing. They said, AWOL Navy SEAL dies in Ukraine. And th- that was kind of all they said. And the people who knew Dan understood that while he, yes, was AWOL, 
that his story was much more complicated and that that one decision he took, even though it was a fateful one for him, um, didn't really speak to, to who he really was. I mean, he, he was a guy who was in the SEALs for a dozen years and was widely respected by those who fought with him. So um, I think uh, at least the guys I, I've been speaking with from the SEALs, uh, they were eager to have something like this come out. Uh, you know, warts and all. But uh, they, they wanted the public to know that Dan wasn't simply just some guy who left his post. The article is The Navy SEAL Who Went to Ukraine Because He Couldn't Stop Fighting, written by Brett Forrest and Ian Lovett, dated May 12, 2023, but it's a timeless piece of journalism. Ian Lovett, uh, final word goes to you. I don't know that I have anything sort of profound to add. We've heard about why uh, veterans have gone to Ukraine and what their stories are for themselves, but what do you think is the actual practical impact of those who've been serving in the foreign legion in Ukraine? Is it making a difference in the war? Is it contributing to Ukrainian morale? Or is it strategically actually having an impact or just simply tactically? Or what What do you think is the larger impact of people like Daniel Swift in Ukraine? Yeah, it, it, it's it's hard to know. It's a tough It's a tough question. I mean, one thing I can say is that Ukraine has lost a large percentage of their most experienced fighters. You know, they've had, they've had, for them, the war has been going on since 2014 when there was the first Russian invasion in Eastern, in Eastern Ukraine. And they've been fighting since then. And a lot of people who had experience from what they call the Donbass war in the East, um, you know, have been killed or wounded or removed from the battlefield in one way or another. And so having extra people who are not, you know, not just more bodies, but who are as, skilled and experienced as as some of the foreign veterans who who are coming in is you know i think i think obviously help they've been scrambling to train as many of their own soldiers as they can to be able to carry out these kind of operations over the last few months and so obviously if you have people who already are capable of, of doing that and of leading some of those those things as as dan swift was that's obviously going to be a an asset let's Ended there today. The article is The Navy SEAL Who Went to Ukraine Because He Couldn't Stop Fighting. You can find it at the Wall Street Journal or find the link to it on realcleardefense.com. Ian Lovett and Brett Forrest, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. And hopefully you can come back and join us in the future. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.